you'll turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 8. The title of our sermon this morning is The Grace of Gospel Fellowship. And our key words for our worshipers in training are work, fellowship, and believers. Now this morning we begin a new series through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. If you've been around for a few years, you'll remember we've already worked through Galatians. We worked through Ephesians, so now we are in Philippians. And you are all uh, pretty smart people, so I guess you could probably imagine what the next New Testament book might be in a while, uh, should the Lord tarry after this one. We have a lot to get to in this introductory part of the book, so we're going to um, jump in and introduce the letter and uh, move right along in the text uh, with each point as we go. So uh, we begin, if you're using your Blue ASV Bible, uh, on page 980, chapter 1. I want to read those first two verses as we introduce the book, and then we will get into uh, the rest of our text this morning. So Philippians 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this letter begins with a very common form of greeting, introducing to us the writer, the recipients, and offering a quick word of encouragement. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but a little bit of background information will be helpful to us as we begin to work through the book of Philippians. Now, there's an interesting nuance in this letter. As, uh, as you see there in the first verse, it mentions two people at the start. And here it's Paul and Timothy. Now, there are a few other letters where two people are mentioned at the beginning, but it's not the majority of the epistles. But like everything, there's a lot of explanations as to why this might be. Why did Paul include Timothy? Maybe they worked together in writing this letter. Maybe Timothy was just there and Paul wanted to make that known. Maybe Timothy wrote it down and Paul dictated it to him. What was going on? What's being communicated with the addition of Timothy's name? Well, I think the most probable explanation is that the letter is, in fact, from Paul himself. He uses throughout the letter a lot of personal pronouns identifying uh, himself, and they're all relating to Paul's life and ministry, not Timothy's. So I don't think it's reasonable to conclude that this is a letter from both of them. This letter fits squarely in the corpus of Pauline literature. Nevertheless, it is important that we not downplay the significance of Timothy's name being included here. Not only was Timothy actively involved in Paul's ministry and his evangelization of Macedonia and Achaia, but he also provided special support to Paul during his imprisonment. His imprisonment, of course, is uh, during this time in which this letter was written. There's also very good reason to believe that the Philippians had an attachment to Timothy himself, just as we do. If you think of many of our faithful friends, uh, brother pastors, like-minded men who have come and ministered to us here through the years, we've delighted to see them come year after year. When, When they're mentioned, our hearts are flooded with reminders of their love and their kindness and their ministry to us, the ways that we have benefited 
from them. And so it's important to note that, that while Paul was very well aware of his apostolic authority, he never had the intent of monopolizing the attention of those who were benefiting from his ministry. This isn't about Paul. This, this isn't about Paul's ministry. It's about the church And it's about the ministry of Christ given through Paul and through others who administer to the church in Philippi. And so Paul is including Timothy here to corroborate what he is saying. And Timothy is, in essence, lending his influence and his authority in their lives to what Paul is saying here in his words, which means he commends this letter as being one and the same with his own words and thoughts. It's sort of like when you pick up a book and you look on the back of the book and there are different notes of commendation. So-and-so gives a little two-sentence statement telling you to read this book. Well, the idea is that those people are trusted individuals, those you've read their works, you've trusted them and their ideas in the past. And so you read that and think, well, then that means I can trust this book because they are giving their credence to it. At least that's how it's supposed to work. And, uh, and that's sort of what we see here with what Timothy is doing. Timothy says Paul's words are okay. They have agreed on this. Therefore, it's okay that we would read and believe what's being said here. In addition to the fact, of course, as mentioned, is Paul's authority as an apostle. Now, we see it's written to the church. Paul calls them saints at Philippi, along with the overseers and the deacons. He's including all of the people of the church here. He's making clear that this is not just a letter to the leadership of the church, but of the entire body of Christ. Overseers is the word that's used throughout the New Testament, synonymous with with bishop, with shepherd, with pastor, with elder. It's the same office, essentially. So another way to understand this is him writing, this letters to the entire church, not just pastors and deacons, but certainly including them as well. So he's not wanting to single anyone out. He wants everyone to know in the church that they need to hear what he is writing to them. Another thing worth pointing out here is that Paul calls the people of the church saints. Did you know that if you're a Christian, you are a saint? Unfortunately, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy have identified only certain people as saints based on their virtuous lives, based on their supposed good deeds when they lived, and it's determined by the hierarchy of the church eventually after they die whether or not they were saints. But the Bible doesn't say anything of the sort. In fact, the Bible says something completely opposite. Quite clearly and repeatedly, the Bible says that every Christian is a saint, not just after we die, but as soon as we become believers. Everyone who is in Christ is a saint. So don't say something like, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm no saint. Well, yes, you are. John Calvin wrote, no man is a believer who is not also a saint. And on the other hand, no man is a saint who is not a believer. You're as much as a saint as was the Apostle Paul and Peter and James and John. So the Bible doesn't tell us to be a saint. It doesn't say we should strive to live saintly lives. It says we are saints. That means that we are a people who are set apart in this world. That's the primary meaning of the word saint. 
And so we can say the church is not primarily an institution, but a gathering of the saints of God. And when we gather as saints in a local church, we we are gathering with all of the other saints who are gathering on the earth, and we are gathering together with all of the saints who who are in heaven. We're gathering with the cherubim and the seraphim as we worship the risen King Jesus Christ. God has always set His people apart from the very beginning, and He continues to do so. And so we are His saints. We've always been a people who are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people whose efforts should all be expended to the glory of God. That's who we are. Now, Paul also provides a general greeting to the church at Philippi, a very similar greeting that he provides in his other letters. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're prone to sort of treat these as sort of throwaway words. Perhaps we all have these sort of things in our way of talking to others. When we make small talk, we'll say things nonchalantly. Perhaps when we're saying goodbye to someone, we'll say God bless or something like that. And we assume maybe that's what Paul is just tossing around here a bit flippantly because he does that in all of his letters. But we should not think that. This is an expression of Paul's heartfelt desire. And we're going to see that unfold throughout the letter. This is him expressing something that is true from his heart, a prayer for the people of God that they would know the grace of God, that they would know the peace of God. Isn't this our desire for our church? Isn't this our desire for other churches that we hold near and dear to our hearts, that they would know the grace and peace of God? My great desire is to to know that we are experiencing God's grace through all of His various means, that we are experiencing together the peace, the shalom of God that comes through the blessing of His being with us and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what we pray for when we pray for other churches in our community and throughout our country and and that we share like-mindedness with in our our network or those churches around the world that God has used other people to plant. We're praying that very thing that Paul is praying for here, that they would know the grace and peace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So truly, this ought to be the heart that we have for all faithful churches of God throughout the world. Now, the background of the letter to the Philippians is this. If you remember from the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas have returned from the famous council of Jerusalem, and that council decided that Gentile believers did not have to be circumcised, that Gentile believers did not have to adopt the Jewish customs in order to be saved. As a result of that, Gentile evangelism was given a big boost. However, It was right after that that Paul and Barnabas separated, and Paul took Silas and sent off on his second missionary journey, eventually joining up with Timothy in Lystra. Now, Paul's initial plan was go the same route as his first missionary journey to visit all of the churches that he had worked with to encourage them yet again. But they tried to travel west, and as they attempted to go to Ephesus, the Holy Spirit stopped them. They tried to go north again. The Holy Spirit didn't allow it. So Paul uh, and Silas and Timothy were forced to go west to Troas where they were joined together by Luke. And it's there at Troas where Paul beheld standing before him a vision of a man from Macedonia. 
urging him and saying, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 16, he said, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called, uh, Luke says, he called us to preach the gospel to them. In an instant, came one of the greatest turning points of history as Paul and company made their way to Philippi. Now, Rome didn't know it at the time, but Christianity staked its claim on the Roman Empire that day. Philippi wasn't a big city, no more than probably about 10,000 people, smaller than Effingham County. They rested on a narrow shoulder of land guarded by the famous highway between Rome and the Eastern Empire. Philippi was founded by the Greeks in the 4th century B.C. by Philip of Macedonia, hence the name Philippi. Uh, Philippi was a Roman colony, so it was governed by Roman law. The public inscriptions in the forum and on the buildings were exclusively written in Latin. So the leadership and aristocracy of Philippi was completely Roman and Latin. This naturally created a Greek-speaking underclass that made up the local populace. They didn't have the language of the elites. And so those who were the Greek speakers, the Hellenists, they were the construction workers, the tradesmen, the merchants... And it's these people to whom Paul initially came, and it's these people who made up the church. Now, it's important to understand here that the church in Philippi would become Paul's favorite church. No question about it. The Philippians were Paul's favorite. Paul enjoyed a unique closeness to the Philippians. And we see this in his exceptionally warm and friendly expressions in this letter. If you recall back to Galatians, the way he began the letter was not the way he begins the letter in Philippians. It's very different. So let's look more carefully at Paul's relationship to the church as we see the grace of gospel fellowship this morning in our text. First, we learn in our first point in verses 3 through 5 that we must give thanks to God for every partnership in the gospel. Look at verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, R. Kent Hughes tells a story of a young chaplain in the British Navy named Broughton Knox who was on a ship that was preparing for D-Day and the invasion of Normandy. Knox noted the mindset of everyone who was on board. Regardless of rank, all of them were focused on the invasion's success. No one thought of his own interests, but only how they could help their shipmates in their commonly shared task. He wrote this in his journal, I remember nothing in my mind how I had never been happier. Soon after the invasion, the ship returned back to England, and everyone began to notice a change in the atmosphere of the men on the ship. It was still well run. It was still very disciplined. Uh, Men were still friendly to one another, but many of them came to Knox as a chaplain and said, what's the difference? Something's different among us. What is it? Knox wrote this. He said, the answer was quite simple. During those months that preceded and followed D-Day, our thoughts had a minimum of self-centeredness in them. 
We gave ourselves to our shared activity and objective. Once the undertaking was over, we reverted to our own purposes as we do normally. We've all likely had experiences like that, haven't we? Being on a team or, or working on a project with others, we experience something, a kind of putting aside of our personal desires for a time to rise to the occasion of the team, to be part of the shared collective interests, not of our own. But once that need seems to be over, we quickly revert back to our own self-centered way of doing life. We may still be friends with the other people. We may get along fine. We may even spend time with them. We may even see some of their needs and share something of our lives with them, but it's just, it's different. The atmosphere is different. And, and therein lies the distinction between friendship and fellowship. If you've ever thought about it, perhaps you've struggled to be able to pinpoint the difference, but that's it. The difference is in a, a friendship and a fellowship is, is primarily focused on how much of ourselves we're really willing to give up. Fellowship is only fellowship when, when friends are committed to a common cause or goal, and it flourishes through a common pursuit of that cause or that goal. Now, now, Paul begins by giving thanks to God for the Philippians' partnership with him in the gospel. That word partnership literally means fellowship. This isn't a sort of punch and cookies social gathering. It's a bond. It's a strong bond. It's a significant unity that we share, tying people together in a greater cause, to greater love, to greater mutual concern for one another. It's a warm relationship, and, and in this instance, it's between Paul and the people of the church at Philippi. And when we hear the word fellowship, what we need to think is, what is the common cause or what is the common goal that is tying these people together? And Paul tells us here, what is it? It is a mutual commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We say that in verse 5 because of your partnership in the gospel. The Philippians, we will see toward the end of the book more clearly, had committed to support Paul's missionary work, through, uh, both spirit spiritually through prayer and also materially by giving him financial resources that he needed to continue on his journey so that as he went from place to place, he didn't have to uh, seek support from the people he was ministering to. The church of Philippi provided for him. And, and it's so important as we work through the letter to understand Paul's deep affection for the people of God, and, and especially for this specific church. There are several reasons we'll see along the way for why Paul wrote to them, and this is one of the main reasons. He loved them, and he wanted to make sure that they understood his love was directed toward them, and his prayers were offered to God on their behalf. This is a kind of relationship we should all strive to have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of us are more relational than others. Some are more friend-oriented than others. But we all have an obligation to work toward this, not just in having better friendships, but in having something greater, having true fellowship with one another that results in our giving of ourselves, laying ourselves down for the sake of the other person. True fellowship will often cost us something. I don't necessarily mean financially, but in terms of our time, in terms of our comfort, in, in terms of our personal wants and desires. 
We need to die to those things regularly if we're to have true fellowship so that we can achieve the end goal that we are aimed at. As Christians, the end goal is glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ together, right? Our end goal is the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. What that means is we we need to have a lot of wisdom in applying the principles of Scripture to our relationships, to determine the ins and outs of our, our fellowship with one another. Here's what I mean. I'll give you an example. I am very convinced from the Scriptures about Baptist principles as it pertains to the covenantal structure of the Bible, to believers' baptism, and to the authority, of the, uh, the authority structure of the church. However, I am also deeply committed to meaningful fellowship with Presbyterians, for example. Why? Because the reality is that as Reformed Baptists, we share more in common with many of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters doctrinally than we often do with others who identify as Baptists. So does that mean our distinctions don't really matter? No, not at all. They do matter. They're worth standing on. They're worth maintaining because our, our, conscious, our, our, our consciences need to be conformed to our understanding of Scripture, and it would be wrong to assume that we should die to our biblical convictions to baptize an infant or to not baptize an infant for the sake of the other party, even though we don't believe that to be a biblical principle. Our authority is the Bible. It is not another Christian's understanding of the Bible. However, Is this a fellowship-breaking issue? I vehemently oppose such a notion. I think of it this way. Fences make great neighbors. We, my wife and I, we have great neighbors. We love our neighbors. We get along with them very well. They're wonderful people. They're Christians, and we praise God that He has put them next to us. That being said, it is very obvious where our property ends and where theirs begins. We have a shared fence in the backyard. We even have different types of grass in the front. That way, I know what I'm responsible for, and he knows what he's responsible for. But just because we make those distinctions doesn't mean we don't love each other. It doesn't mean we don't care about what's going on in each other's yards or homes. It doesn't mean we're unwilling to cross over into the other yard because it's not ours. That's silly. However, the boundaries actually help us to have a better relationship. It gives us markers, so there's no reason for discrepancy or upset. And so likewise, I can have the same common goal with brothers and sisters I have disagreements with in terms of some doctrinal issues because we want to see together, we want to see Christ glorified. We want to see the Lord Jesus high and lifted up together. And so we're able to set our boundaries. We're able to show where we differ. We can focus instead on the things where we unite. Most importantly, that thing being the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that, we can say with Paul to our friends in so many different churches, in many different denominations, we thank God in our remembrance of you always in every prayer for you all, making our prayer with joy because of our fellowship in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can offer that prayer with a genuine, thankful heart. And brothers and sisters, I cannot stress how important it is that we have an understanding that we're not, only, we're not the only Christians in America. 
or in Georgia or in Rinkin or on Goshen Road. We're not the only church around, and, and we're not even the church that does everything a church can do better than anybody else. We are a part of the body of Christ, and, and, and we have convictions that we need to stand on, but we also must strive to have deep fellowship with other believers. Now, we have most prominently in our fellowship we have that with, with other churches that we find in our network, and that's why we're a part of a, a group of churches. We are like-minded with them in more ways than we are with others, and so we're able to partner with them on a more significant level. But they are all around the country, so we don't always have opportunities with them to, to grow together with them like we might with other local bodies of Christ in our area. And so we need to build those relationships. We need to keep them strong. And that's going to require sometimes that we die to ourselves. We, we don't have to change what we believe. We shouldn't, and, and we shouldn't insist that they do that either. But it also doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about those things. We can talk about them with them. We can have loving, robust debate about those things. But in the end, we need to stake our claim on the fact that we have a common fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is very important. Can you and do you give thanks to God for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Not just here in this church, but all around the world. Throughout our community. We've tried very hard to model that in our leadership and trust that God will help all of us to continue to die to ourselves, that we would do all that we can do to make much of the gospel with our brothers and sisters around the world. Now, Paul continues to encourage the Philippians, and he promises them in our second point this morning in verse 6, that our gospel fellowship will be brought to a glorious consummation when Christ returns. Look again at verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, if we isolate this verse from the context, which is often done, it still offers a, a nice promise that could be true, but it's not what Paul means to communicate here. So we have to be careful. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that in continuing in this kind of gospel fellowship that we have described, this dying to self for the good of one another in, our, in, in the gospel, that God might work through us and in us, and building up the church to the glory of God, and, and, and God will continue to work in and through us until He brings us right up to that day in the end, and we will all gather together as one people of God from every tongue, tribe, and nation to worship God without boundaries and without borders. Our gospel fellowship one day will be complete, and our fellowship will, will succeed gloriously when all things are made new. Why? Because our salvation is God's work from beginning to end, and Paul is telling us here that it is God's work to keep us in gospel fellowship until Christ's return as well. And so all of the dissimilarities that we have here, all of the differences that we have, all the fences that we have had to put up that we might be able to better work together will be gone. All of the distinctions of our denominational differences will be gone. 
all of our doctrinal inconsistencies and inaccuracies will be gone. All of the things that we do that keep us apart, whether it be separation because of music styles or worship styles or color of skin or whatever it is that we look to that brings us apart from one another in our churches will be gone. And we will all be together. And, and Paul is telling us he began this work in you. He is continuing to complete this work in you. But he will bring this to final completion in the day of Jesus' return. Everything is from God. And if we would all reflect on our own lives, if we would all reflect on our, our own journey with Christ, we will recognize that it's not our grip on God. It's not our grasp on God that makes the difference in our perseverance. It's God's grip on us. There's one thing in this world we can and should be confident in, and that is God Himself. We cannot have confidence in our own flesh, but we can have confidence in the God who brought us to Himself, that He will not keep us where we are, but that He will bring us to the end that we might experience true, unhindered, untainted fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with all of His people forever and ever. It's a beautiful picture. You see, Paul is giving them an encouragement that while they may face troubles now, and we've all experienced that, fellowship is not an easy thing. We do have differences. We do have disagreements. Sometimes those relationships can get messy and tense and strained, but one day there will be no difference or disagreement or mess or strain. We will rest perfectly with Jesus Christ. So even though Paul was in prison in writing this letter, we'll see that in verse 7, he remembered the Philippians with a glad-heartedness, a prayerful disposition with great joy in knowing that one day they will be together and there will be no hindrance in their fellowship. We can all have confidence that the work of Jesus that he has inaugurated will one day be brought to this glorious completion. And I hope that we've all had some sense of how sweet that will be. I hope we've all had sweet times with other believers where we've been able to rejoice in our relationships in such a way that, that we get together and we experience something of this kind of fellowship and, and, and there's no pretense, there's no false judgments, there's no expectations. We, we get a bit of a glimpse of what that's like, this sweet fellowship and, and then we, we kind of see what it's going to be like one day. A time that we never want to leave, that we're, we're together and nobody wants to get up and, and call it a night. We want to continue on together these gospel-saturated times with the Lord and His people. That's how it ought to be. That's how it will be in the glorious end. He began a good work in you by saving and sanctifying you. He will bring it to its completion fully and finally at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, finally, in our last point this morning, verses 7 and 8, we see the love of Christ is expressed and evident in the unity and affection believers have for one another. Look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
Now, one of the blessings of being in ministry is having the joy of watching God work through efforts that you put forward to bring people to Himself and to mature through what's being done in the work of preaching and teaching and making disciples. It's unequivocally true that for any minister of the gospel, the people in this world that we hold most near and dear to our hearts are those who have benefited the most from our labors. We've likely spent a lot of time with them. We've certainly prayed for them. We've, we've bore their burdens and have sought to point them to the truth. And we've rejoiced alongside them as the Lord has done a great work in them. It's a process of, of spiritual gestation that we never forget. And and given the situation in Philippi, when Paul arrived, it's quite evident that he held this church very near and dear to his heart for that very reason. He saw them from where they were as pagans, and he sees where they are now in Christ, overjoyed with all that God has done through them. He's seeing their growth. He's seeing their longing for more of Christ, and he wants to continue to bless them. And, and likewise, when, when someone has ministered to us, we have a, a special affinity for them. We love them, and we respect them, and we have a deep longing to, to bless them. And, and it's quite obvious here that's exactly what the church wanted for Paul. It was a mutual love. It was a mutual unity that was expressed in their affections for one another through, through their words and through their deeds. But, but Paul specifically here wants them to know where he's at with all of them. He has them deep at the center of his being and consciousness. He's telling them, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. I hold you in my heart. It's a sweet affirmation. He is expressing the full scope of love for them. I love you with everything that I am. Now that word in verse 7, partakers, it could be translated fellowshippers. And and I really like that because it gives a better picture of all he's saying in context. Think about it, beginning in verse 3. I thank God for you. I am praying for you with joy because of the fellowship we share in the gospel. And the full measure of our fellowship will be realized at the return of Christ in glory. And I, and, and I have you at the center of my heart because you are fellowshippers with me in the grace that is ours, even while I am in prison for the sake of the gospel. You are fellowshippers with me of grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful picture of, of, of what God has built between the apostle and the people of God? It, it's a beautiful picture of what God builds between His people in his church. It's interesting to see that that grace is most often used to describe the work of God in salvation, which is vitally important for us to grasp. We need to understand that. But, But Paul also has a very robust theology of sanctification where he uses this word, how God uses means, how God uses circumstances in our lives to bring about greater godliness and greater holiness, conforming us more into the image of Christ. And here he says, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. These are words of suffering. These are words of sacrifice. And and Paul is calling it a kind of grace from God. We'll see this again toward the end of the chapter in a few weeks. But the basic principle is that there's suffering. There is suffering because of the gospel. And that suffering is a grace in Paul's thinking. 
Just consider how radical that would have been in Paul's day to say that suffering was grace from God. I'll give you a hint as to how radical it was. No less radical than it is in our day. Just look around. We have innumerable number of services and, and whatever you can find. Anything is available to try to limit and delay and put off and avoid suffering at all costs. And Paul is saying it is grace from God. We're going to address suffering later in the book of Philippians. But as for this text, Paul and the Philippians fellowshiped even while he was chained in prison. He was chained between two different guards. And the Philippians prayed for him. They provided financial support to him. Probably along with that, they fed him. They remembered him in prison as though they were there with him. And even though they were far away from one another... They sensed their hearts being knit together as one. It was the richness of the fellowship from the grace of Paul's suffering for the gospel that became, it became the grounds of deep affection for them. Now, sometimes when the elders are hanging out together, we recall old stories of ministry together, how sometimes those things are a bit painful. After a while, there are, there, are a bit of, there, there are quite a few experiences that start to add up together, some crazy stories. It's amazing to, to recount those things and to think about what God has delivered us from, what He's bought, brought us through, how He's changed us through those things for the better, even though at times we may not have slept for days, we may have felt sick, we may have been on, a, on edge for, for months at a time. And, and, and while it's only a hint of the affliction that Paul experienced in his fellowship with the Philippians, we get a glimpse and we can, we can rejoice that it's just part and parcel of the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the longer we are together in gospel fellowship, the more we will experience together in things that are not just great and glorious and wonderful, but in things that are painful, in things that rip at our hearts, things that we are weeping together over. And yet, those are a part of our defense and confirmation of the gospel. If we we would rather not stand on faithfulness, if we would rather not stand on the gospel, all of the pain and struggle all the torment that we experience through those challenging times would just kind of go away. But if we want to remain faithful to God, if we want to remain faithful to the gospel, we know the longer we walk together, we're going to experience difficult times. And it is in those difficult times that our fellowship and our unity in Christ is strengthened. It is not diminished. It is a grace from God. And we remain to this day bound with special affliction. And that affliction has brought us to where we are. And our love for one another is because of that. I, I, with many, I've, I've told many people that as far as being in our church and the size that it is, I think it really took me about seven years of ministry here before I had the opportunity to minister to most of the families in the church in a significant way that grew us closer together. But now we have those experiences, and we can look on those experiences together, and those bonds have built us closer to one another And we walked together, sometimes through very tough times. And it's in those things that we have grounds for deeper affection. And and as hard as stuff can be sometimes, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I wouldn't. Because it's the grace of God that we could 
we, we can never have that level of intimacy otherwise. It's because of that that we share gospel fellowship and love with one another. Nothing else is strong enough to hold us together. 